Welcome to the Beaver Legends series with Tim Barnum. Hello and welcome to this edition of the Beaver Legends podcast. My name's Tim Barnett and in this edition I'll be talking to Deborah Baker. Deborah spent most of her working career in industry, but a love of racing led her to represent Beaver on the Horse Racing Advisory Committee, where she helped tackle a number of welfare issues in both the racing and breeding industries. She was also heavily involved in the team developing the training courses for pre-purchase examination of horses and her work for Beaver eventually led her to becoming the association's first female president. I hope you enjoy her fascinating story. Okay, Deb Baker, thank you very much for agreeing to do uh, this edition of the Beaver Legends podcast. Uh, So I ask everybody the same starting question. How does a girl from Guildford... Uh, originally born in Boston in the USA, uh, decide that she wants to be a vet, and why in particular did you want to be an equine vet? So I guess um, there's been a long history of family and horses. So my mother out in India just after VE Day used to ride, they were called whalers across country and stonewalls in India. Then when she went to America, she had a she had two horses. One was a stallion, but one was one of those cutting ponies that they used to pony things down to races. And father ridden. Anyway, fast forward. I started riding when I was about six. And then, oh, the family has asthma. Deeply boring. And I was told I couldn't touch anything equine for two years. And, uh, which was an absolute, but I wasn't even allowed to touch a donkey. It was heartbreaking. So, and of course, in those days, everything was hay and straw and whatever. And I remember my eyes used to go like Dracula's, bright red, most unappealing. And it used to itch like hell. I think I remember sort of breaking the old blood vessels, scrubbing away. Anyway, at nine, hurrah, allowed to get back. And then the stables where we had the horses were run by this terrifying woman. I mean, health and safety would have had a fit. And it was a mixed hunting livery yard, and she had breeding stallions. And it was brilliant because you learnt how to avoid evil horses and there was all this. But she had a, a vet in the yard who was quite terrifying as a child. He had a toothbrush moustache. And I subsequently, later, he's a charming man who'd served in the Indian Army. Um, anyway, he was dealing with a horse that had slashed its leg because, of course, there was barbed wire everywhere and God knows what. And I was sort of peering at this and he sort of said, look, perfectly healthy blood. The more the better. Flushes it out. And I, that was the first... Um, and I was fascinated by him fixing this leg. And then I think subsequently we had a big Doberman that had an unfortunate encounter with a particularly savage next door dog and had huge lumps taken out of it. And it ripped all its stitches out. I was alone with it. And again, a veterinarian came out and stitched it. And again, I thought, right, this is what I want to do. And so really my horse, we had horses, we hunted, evented, all that sort of stuff. And then my first thoroughbred of my own, or I had for two years, belonged to a, uh, shall we say, um, someone who's gay, who'd been given this by a boyfriend, but it kept firing him off. So I was allowed to have this age 16, which was an education. And I spent a lot of time being buried in places I'd rather not. <laughs> and, and it was an introduction to how quick thoroughbreds are. And I think that's something I know if I went back to them, that, you know, how fast they are at biting, kicking, doing anything else they want to do. But I... Ever since, ever since then, thoroughbreds are my passion. I'm used to go to point to points and want to sell race cards and things. Um, and then it went on from there, and I kept saying I want to be a vet, and everyone said, "Yes, dear, pat, pat." 
dragged myself through physics A-level, which I found the way it was taught at a girls' school was awful. It was so dull. Never used it again, but somehow scraped through to the Royal Vet College. And then, uh, what's now called extramural study, I was lucky to be sent to Lambourne after doing dairy practice. And um, that's when it really became a passion, if you like, racing. I'd always enjoy, but when you're embedded in Lambourne, and that's all people do. Yeah, absolutely. And so, uh, what year of that was uh, university? What, what, what year were you in at that time with the EMS? Uh, EMS 75. And um, so I started there, and Charles Frank was still a senior partner. He retired that Easter. And he was the most wonderful mentor. I mean, nothing, but nothing fazed him. He allowed one to do all sorts of things that most students weren't. I mean, if I tell you, for example, we went to one stud and um, he eyed up this chestnut mare, whose name I remember still called Aunt Jabiska. And she said, oh, yes, I, I think a, a needle got lost in its neck last time. Now, that would be me. I'd be having a hairy fit with a needle being left. Sleepless nights. <laughs> And then another time when a horse somehow managed to come out over the top of stocks. I don't know how it did it, but it came out and it sort of crash landed onto the table of instruments. And he used to smoke a pipe, which he used to have regularly, you know, to hand. And just said, oh dear, you know, just, you know, it was a mere detail. Just picked itself up and oh, was fine. But he was similar, similarly with um, terrifying ladies of the jockey club because I remember him taking me racing to Ascot jump meeting after we'd done our stud work one day and uh, some very scary woman wearing a turban looms down and he said oh Philippa said he in the long discussion he, he said you know I can never remember what horses Philippa has but I find if I intersperse yeses and noes that it keeps her happy and um, we get on famously <laughs> <laughs> And so then you finished at the Royal Vet College, and what was your what was your first job uh, out of out of the Vet College? Well, go back one at Lambourne for a moment because mm. one of my legends over is Rosie Lomax. So the second, the, the summer vac was um, very kindly Rosie Lomax, who won the Ascot Gold Cup in seventy five or no seventy four, I think, first woman to ever do so, one of the first to have a, a trainer's license. So I used to stay with her and ride out first lot during the week and then weekends do too. And she taught me an awful lot about, you know, confirmation and uh, in every way, every aspect. She's a very shrewd betting woman as well. Um, then my first job was a wake-up call because I'd always been lucky as a student and the practice I went to looked fine, it was mixed, but it was uh, dar, shall we say. If I, if I tell you that when I arrived, the only thing to treat colic with was something called Altan, which is a purgative which um, right. I think I think was rudely referred to as shit or bust in the... Um, <laughs> that was it. your only treatment for garlic. Yes, and a very, very shriveled-looking Bunsen burner tubing-like thing, which was apparently a stomach tube. And so when I nervously inquired, could I have some buscapan, a bottle arrived on which the great man wrote, this cost us however many pennies. Anyway, um, that, that, was, that was a time I realised that. And, and I also realised that how much you don't know. It was a horrible wake-up call that after five years and copious files, it's, and when you're on your own and then you have to deal with clients and things and there's no top cover, it's just you. And i tell you one thing that was funny, because it was mixed, I was called up. It was a, the very hot summer of 76. And uh, there was a fallen steer I think it was in very sort of dark awful accommodation and of course at vet schools you have 
your path department with chains and water and it's all marvellous. Well, there was this beast that was blown and stiff as a board, obviously been there some hours. And I was sent out with my puny scalpel to say what it had died of. And I thought, God, we're looking at this thing like a barrage balloon. So I remember being taught, you know, don't just, you know, do it slowly. Well, I made a nervous incision and it exploded. And I, was sort of, I had very short hair at the time. And as I was sort of wiping stomach contents and God knows what, this farmer said, oh, he said, what makes a girl like you do a job like this? And I said, well, actually, at this moment, I couldn't possibly tell you. And then he's charming after that, her marvellous service. He said, oh, I thought you were the apprentice. I didn't know you were a real vet, said he firmly, as I you know, went off to scrub up and something. <laughs> um, so at that time, Guelph was a big place to go for postgrad, um, but I'd missed the intake. So um, Alan Betts, who very kindly put me up, I had to go and do something because I had to earn money. And a vet I'd been a student with said, well, look, why not try industry? Because he'd done something working and doing clinical trials. And I did um, and ended up staying there uh, which allowed me then to go on and do racehorse training, which I wouldn't have had time to do if I'd been in full-time practice. So you were working, recently graduated in industry and training horses at the no, same time. No, I didn't start, the didn't start my permit till 83. So my, my brother used to ride in point to point. And 83, we bought our first useless beast, charming but useless, absolutely sweet, went to the painting club eventer but I mean I, I have a photograph somewhere showing it jumping the water at somewhere and <laughs> the photographer said oops the water is this thing had obviously taken off and then realized there was water on the far side and he could see it uh, so <laughs> that was one and then we had another one which was potentially could have been used but very weird his mother had come forth in the Grand National but was quirky and um, he actually rearranged both of us separately. He trod on my leg, and I think uh, my brother nearly got castrated being shoved into a tree. So he was um, <laughs> didn't, didn't actually excel on the racetrack, so we say. Uh, so it wasn't until 86 when I, you know, I got married and we moved up to the Warwickshire that I actually had a decent horse and one could do things properly. Yeah, and what, what, what were you training? Was it point-to-pointers, national hunts? No, my view is that. I wouldn't really waste my time. If I had a child that wanted to do pointing, I would do. But quite often, the amount of effort and sweat you put into it and the going off at a point to point isn't very good, nor is the jockey ship. So I, I would rather do it professionally than not. Yeah, yeah, sure, sure. Um, because it's the same cost, the same everything. And um, I had a mare anyway, so I thought about breeding from it later. So, and there's, you know, no prize money in point, unless you're using it as a shop window as the Irish do to sell, you know, I put four point points and then that's a different matter altogether. And returning back, you mentioned going to work in industry. So you, you did you did you leave equine practice for a period of time and go into industry and well, I went straight in actually. I didn't mean to, but it was in, those were in the very bad old days when you did everything. You did some regulatory, you did clinical trials, you did you know, it was much less regulated and in those days, there were many pharmaceutical companies, but it was a German-French one. And I worked for a wonderful man who had done tropical medicine in Papua New Guinea, and he was splendidly un-PC. So I, it allows you in industry to learn a lot about, for example, parasiticides and everything else, because you have to compare them to other people's. So as a, as a, I suppose, pharmacology, for example, and other disciplines, it's very useful. Yeah, yeah, and what was it you were actually doing in the industry then? I mean, it's—I mean, the industry's well, certainly now it's quite a wide, 
wide scope of, uh, of jobs for vets in there. What were, what were you actually I was doing? In, well, it was to, to begin with, I was called veterinary whatever, and then it became sort of business development marketing. So it was everything. So, for example, I st- cut my teeth. The first compound I launched was gonadorelin, and then it was buzarelin, and then Regumate with Twink Allen. So we did trials with okay. him. And those were hilarious because Twink was not a man for, you know, it's these piles of rather sort of stained paper would turn up, you know, to be knocked into shape. I mean, now, you know, of course, with statistics and everything else, I mean, it's a whole different ball game. But um, in fact, Regiment was launched at his conference in Newmarket in 81 when okay. Twink, Twink decided that it was his conference, so he was going to have three solid days of fertility. He did not care about protests from everybody else. There was no orthopedics. <laughs> the only Beaver Congress with no orthopedics. Not a sniff of anything except fertility. So it was like <laughs> an international fertility fair. And, of course, there's lots of national teeth. But, you know, that was the way he did it. And, and he shoved all the industry stands and things, these are the days, in some dank borough of Cambridge, you know, which, again, there was mutiny afoot, you know, all these sponsors <laughs> shoveled us. It was hilarious. But only two people have done that. It's wonderful. Um, yeah. And so um, you left industry. When did you leave industry? And- well, I only left it, really. I, went, I was there for 23 years, and uh, that only happened because this huge company of 80,000 employees dissolved in the name of shareholder value. And our bit was bought by the wrong way around, actually, a smaller company, now defunct. And I lasted three years, and then I said, no, enough. I think I was offered the chance to go to live in Holland, which I simply didn't want to do, and it wasn't for me anyway, so that's when I got out. But um, going back from that, I mean, I don't know if you want to pick up on how I ended up becoming Beaver president back yeah, in the Yeah, definitely. Well, that all came about, because once you start being a permit trainer, you, you, the, everything, A, stops with you, but also it's like going backstage, and in those days, race courses were much less... Um, well appointed should we say than they are now and things like for example you turn up and you learnt more about each racetrack's various conundrums but I remember going to one track and the the straw was so mouldy that even with the door open I could barely breathe and that was what your horse lived in and there's a broken window and I was seeing another horse that the the parade ring was so slippery it fell over when it was walking round and 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 there were a number of things and um, also I used to take a huge vet box with me for racing because the problem was there were no facilities and trainers were sending their horses back from race courses because there wasn't much there. So if you imagine you have a cut in a leg, by the time it gets home, you've got something that's getting infected. So one of the things I did do was, well, just as as I was becoming president, I did a a survey of facilities at racetracks. And I've got, someday I was given to Beaver because I did two and they're hilarious, the comments. And there's one racetrack who was premier, premier racetrack of Britain. And what we were suggesting was that everyone should have proper lit surface boxes where horses could be dealt with and you could see and you could wash and you had bandages, blah, blah. Simple things, nothing exciting. And this poor man wrote back, I should think I would have died and gone to heaven if I had this. The current <laughs> consist of the coal tap and the dense loo and the veterinary box has the lawnmowers in it. <laughs> that was on the tracks. And so it went on. So um, anyhow, back in the day, I think um, Douglas Witherington was retiring and I, Pete Webben was then, I think, secretary of Beaver. And I was sort of, by this time on council, and sort of muttering darkly about the facilities. And he said, well, you didn't say much about it. You can sit on the industry committee. 
and I did. And then, you know, at that time, there wasn't the Association of Racing Racing Veterinary Surgeons. And um, I have to say the incumbent of the jockey club at the time wasn't the most vigorous, should I say, perhaps, until okay. people hands on it. And so um, that's what led me to being the... the um, the president in the end because I guess because of the work that I did you know stable hygiene and and also thanks to Peter Green the a lot of the the injuries or deaths were pieces of paper people have lived were shoved in desks at the racetrack they never saw the light of day so you never knew mm, okay. where and so Peter Green helped me a lot in getting it done Weatherby's and I've got it highly sophisticated so they can look at anything at any time and I think there have been significant improvements because of the data that's gathered yeah a lot of papers that have come out recently are looking at that yes. data of course as well all that came out and, and James would help me because obviously to begin with it wasn't statistically done but gradually it's become more sophisticated and this was all correct me if I'm wrong but you were working in industry at the time but it was yeah. your love of horse yes. racing that got you involved in beaver yeah. as a vet and yes. then and yeah. then eventually you became president of beaver yeah. yeah not the first female to be um thought of but the first one to make it should we say um yeah of course you you yeah unfortunately the other lady passed yes. away am i right I think it was olwyn ricketts i think her name was and she was a cardiologist i understand and but she I think she'd been secretary of Beaver way back in the day, but she would certainly appreciate me. And since, of course, there have been numerous. So, but of course, back in those days, that was all, when I was in racing, seeing as a student EMS, that a lot of trainers wouldn't have a woman in the yard. Mm. Certainly not as a veterinary surgeon, absolutely not. Mm. And, I mean, there was, my year at vet school, I can remember a little Welshman turning to me and said, well, I'll get a better job than you because I'm a guy. <laughs> Thanks. And that was that was one of your people in your yeah. year at university. Yes, yes, he was Welshman. I shouldn't say that. <laughs> I mean, those, those were the days when everyone, they all played rugby, and on a Wednesday, you know, everyone counted off to go and play for London Welsh or Saracens or whatever. You go there now, and there's a twittering of all the girls going to play hockey, and there's one lone man looking rather full of, rotting off, looking rather sheepish. <laughs> racing has changed. I mean, if you look now, when you watch racing on TV, the number of staff that are girls, huge. Mm. I don't know if you see that in Newmarket now, I'm guessing. How many? Oh, yeah, are? definitely. And uh, female trainers, uh, and of course, female jockeys. Um, and the majority of the uh, people riding horses out in the mornings are female as well. So, yeah, definitely. Plus, lots and lots of female vets. Yes, absolutely. So it's it's out of all recognition. Um, and then going back to the presidential year, that um, I was lucky again as a vet student because people like Charles and others. So when you were going around and they were doing pre-purchase exams, you could have they would quietly show you something. So you got to see, and you know it was the kind of the art, I suppose. But of course, you can't do that. You can hardly summon a student and say, "Get a load of this." grade four heart murmur when the vendor was standing right beside you going you know looking evil and so um we started this course and i and some of my heroes honestly people like norman chandler all the a lot of the vets who did the work at doncaster sales bless them mm. took on the first of the pre-purchase exams and i'm delighted they've been full ever since because th th that's years of experience and how to sort of make a judgment call on what's before you. I mean, I know owners tell lies about, but in racing, at least there's some vague idea of what people want to do. 
And uh, Charles, who then went on to work for the Veterinary Defence Defense Society, I was pleased to hear that it had brought down legal cases, often against young vets, um, by about 10% then. And I think it's probably helped a bit since then. Yeah, and it certainly seems to be something that is definitely the done thing. Um, when you get to a point in your career that you are vetting horses, the, 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 the VDS course is perceived as an essential thing to do. Um, and I believe that course is oversubscribed every year. So it's, it's But it's so, the people who did that, years of looking at salesmen, and I love going to sales because you have a chance to see many horses up against each other, the good, the bad, the ugly. And similarly, the way that they would um, assess things, you know, maybe not perfect, but it'll do whatever's required of it or whatever. And also, I guess people like that aren't challenged as much by clients, you know, whereas, you know, a young vet, it's very easy to be prayed on. And of course, what we didn't have in those days was social media. Oh, and I've yeah. Yeah. Awful tales of, you know, some poor youngster doing something which wasn't their fault and then all the trolls pile in and even people who haven't used the practice before. Mm. Yeah, or recording. <clears throat> so everything that they do in the vetting is recorded on a farm. What, the client does that? Mm. Client or potential purchaser recording, the image, uh, recording everything that's done and mm, keeping a record of it. I mean, imagine the pressure that you're under doing a vetting and trotting up a horse when someone's recording it. Yes, to be able to replay it at your leisure many times over when something goes pear-shaped. I, I think it must be awful. Mm, yeah. But that was, an, that, was, that was your presidential year, and that was very much one of your babies that you looked after, wasn't it? And it really yes, was that, that course and that, that concept of training vets in how to do a pre-purchase examination. But it was thanks to a lot of them who'd been pre previous been presidents, if you like. There was a wonderful lot of Bob Ordage. A lot of them have gone now. But you know, these wonderful cadre of vets, especially at the Doncaster sales. I mean, I think we, I'm not sure we had any from Newmarket because it's rather different. But, you know, because I guess jumpers are much more like the competition horse might be, the sort of thing you're looking at. And um, they've kindly volunteered, you know, to do it. And it's gone on from there, of course. But it's thanks to those first folk who... You know, John Parker and, and all those people who, who gave her their time. But the other thing was, I, I also a huge debt of thanks to, to Libby Archer, who was then working for the Betting Levy Board. And as a small-time permit trainer, I was fascinated by sports medicine because I had to work with imperfect gallops. So I used to use a heart rate meter so I could actually assess workload. And I rapidly discovered that actually less is more. In other words, I did the barest minimum distance. I used a lot of hill work, interval training, because I made a terrible error early days. You can counter horses and make them look terribly thin and pretty, but all you do is wear their tendons out, especially if they're national hunt horses. And um, Roger Smith, we were at a, one, I think we were at a sports medicine meeting, and we were just chatting, and they said a lot of this stuff doesn't get to where it needs to be used by trainers and breeders. And so thanks to Libby, we launched it first at the open meeting at Charlton free, so everybody came free. But it grew to be 500 delegates who paid about 50, 60 pounds for the day. Now, it stopped because I left industry and then the, and then a levy board, whatever. But I still think, not because I introduced it, but I think there, that it would be worth bringing back. What, what was done there was, was not supposed to be a veterinary gathering, although, of course, vets came. But it was very much, this is what the latest research is and this is what it means to you. This is the yeah. take home. We did have to struggle with one or two speakers who wouldn't have it and trailed off into some sort of, you know, had to be physically removed from the stage. <laughs> 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 uh, 
um, and, and Pete Webber did a wonderful job of chairing that. Um, but I think it, it was something that could be brought back. And now with um, webcasts, I belong to the Royal Society of Medicine, and they regularly have both, you know, attendees, and also you can clock in as well, and you, so you can watch it. But yeah. I don't. There's no, as far as I know, there's no CPD for trainers, and as you know, they can train till they're eighty. And the youngsters, if they're not of an inquiring mind, will just learn from their mentors. But that may or may not be the best way. You know, you get some trainers who are hugely successful because they got the charm and they churn through them. And if you look at some of the the, the um, success rates of very successful trainers, it might only be 6%, but they do it because they're very good at getting the numbers through. Yeah, yeah. As in the volumes. Yes. Just and they don't mind. And they don't mind. I, 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 one trainer I stood next to the gallop said, "Well, I'd rather break them down on the racetrack than here." So his view was he didn't, you know, he didn't care, just burn through them. But he had a ready supply of people who'd give them the next one. That doesn't happen if you're a perma trainer because your boo boo stays with you. Yeah, yeah, of course, of course. And you don't, you don't ever have those numbers to. Yeah. No, so it's not right. I mean, I, I think you acts of God you live with, but I think prevention. And that's why sports medicine, learning what works and what, you know, what the latest ways of treating things, avoiding things. And I know um, Richard Smith tried to be looking at, um, I don't know what Roger or that, whether he's got to his blood test, which is a holy grail, looking at a tendon injury monitor, because that would be such a blessing. If you only thing that would flag up to you to back off before it becomes a great hole and you have months off and, you know, because I, one of my vet colleagues had made an irritating remark, which said, when God made time, he made plenty of it, which is such rubbish, because there's only one derby, or there's only one badminton, you know, it's no yeah. good you have another year, because you don't always. No, no, and especially not with uh, working with flat <coughs> horses as well, which is, you don't have that many years no. to work with at all, you know, so, no. uh, so limited. Well, that's incredible, I mean, there's three or four things there that some to some degree you had a part in changing the profession to a degree and having an influence on both the racing industry and the equine veterinary industry and um while all working in industry which is incredible um well, i was probably allowed to do it you see now of course we, use yeah. we did use equine vaccines and wormers and things so i had that on my side yeah and in the old days, you were encouraged to do that sort of thing. I think now, doubtless, you'd be absolutely forbidden. And what did you, what did you do after you left industry um, uh, the first time? What did you do after that? After well, I went, I'd, I went in to, to work for somebody who had some technology which actually didn't work. It was for something that was to do with um, blood banking. In the course of that, I've got involved what I'm doing now, which is basically a dna read technology but it's been looking at a biomarker biomarker and treatment you probably know because in human cancer now it's all precision medicine so no longer you know breast cancer is one thing it's 12 different and it's very much more selecting the right treatments for that particular cancer or treatments but very selectively and um I guess that will happen in, 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 well, certainly in companion animals. But um, so I've been involved in that really for the last eight years. So firstly, sort of doing all the painful association work, which is all grant funded. So you, you've already done grants. I don't know, but you apply and you wait and then you get some and then you do some more work. And it's, it's a very protracted process. But we're just getting there, hopefully, to do a final randomised control study, which, you know, you have to accept it may not work, you know. 
There's a yeah. lot of great, lots of stage three studies that go pear shaped. And it's kind of what has to happen in a way, isn't it? It's, it it's, is. It's part yeah. of the course. I, 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 you know, from an outsider's view of the industry and the pharmaceutical industry, I assume a lot of that goes on before, before what is desired is is, is happened upon. Oh, so. they say only ten percent of compounds make it through to licensing, and that's 10%. why a lot of a lot of repurposing of compounds is going on. Rather like if you remember um, dexamethasone and COVID. Yeah, then there's yeah. a lot of merit in looking as you understand more how things work, that you go back and look at stuff. And probably some of the old horse remedies have some, you know, because I've still got the recipe book from Lambourne, which the, the, the indoor lad said, you can write all these down and that works and that works. I mean, I don't know, there was all sorts of fascinating little nostrums. Trainers used to come in and have these little packages handed out. It was wonderful. That could be your millions sat there in that notebook. This <laughs> <laughs> is my horrid writing. Uh, <laughs> but the other thing was that industry allowed in those days to do is that under the under the guise, you know, we had an advert. So I, I was able to produce a colic book, a sarcoid book, the Derek Norton belt. So one could produce useful literature for horse owners or veterinary surgeons to use for their clients, you know, which you, you couldn't do. Or probably online now you can. Um, but, but it wasn't around then. It was all sort of paper-based. But we got through thousands of colic brochures and, and, and body scoring for, for yes, body scoring for, for breeding. Right. Okay. And producing documentation for the veterinary practitioners yes. and owners, presumably. Is yes. This? Absolutely. Yes. I mean, can you imagine in human medicine the horror of some poor, the poor young fellow I work with, <laughs> came off night duty saying she just had to do a cesarean, and a woman with body mass index fifty. Right. Yes. <laughs> I think it makes fat Labradors look positively there's nothing. There's not a lot you can say at that time, is it? In this joyful no. time for the person <laughs> as well. So it's absolutely exhausted, this poor girl. She's sort of tottered out her eyes hanging out and thought. Oh, oh my word. That's incredible. That's an incredible incredible career so far. Um, well, not really. It, it's, I, I, I put it in the context of self-interest, obviously, being a perpetrator, but a bit like the advances made with um, sewage sewage and, and potable water or Lister and hind hygiene and Florence Nightingale. Not very glamorous, but hopefully useful. Yeah, really. definitely, definitely. But, I mean, surgery I'm in awe of. I mean, remember Larry Bramlage, who I'm sure you've sat and listened to. Many times, yeah. And when he puts out radiographs of something which to me looks like a bag of marbles and then shows you about a gazillion screws that go in every direction. I mean, I could not ever do that. I knew I'd never be an orthopedic surgeon. Never, never, never. I mean, if I tell you IKEA, I had a scarring experience once. It tells you why I would never have made an orthopedic surgeon and how the hell you know how to put those screws in at those angles I, is beyond me. <laughs> Well, uh, I mean, I suppose, I mean, I asked um, similar questions to everybody, and other than your experience in IKEA, uh, what would you say would have been your biggest failure in your career? Oh, God, that's that pharaoh hand that sticks out in measurement. Then that mixed practice, I was on duty, I was on duty for 10 days on end, and I was summoned out to see this pharaoh hand, which is like the ones you see in the tombs. I've never seen one before or since. And there was a very aggressive kennel owner, and this dog apparently was hugely valuable. The seven-year-old, oh, this is etched in my memory, horror. And the owners were away in Hollowell coming back, so he just, I was out there. And it had 
it hadn't been urinating properly. It was highly nasty tempered and, and neurotic. Um, and it was running a fever, and I thought, well, it, it, it's neurosis, was perhaps meaning it had urinary retention, which it did. The one thing I didn't do, and he didn't tell me, was check it had two testicles. And horrors, it had a retained testicle, and it was that that was occluding its urethra. And if I, it wasn't operable on that minute, and we dealt with it as it should have been. But of course, oh horror! It went back home to the owners' vets, who promptly rang up the, the man I worked for, who said, "You know, what incompetence!" I mean, quite rightly, I should have started at one end and gone to the other, and I didn't. Uh, and that's that still... still makes me sweat. Yeah. <laughs> oh blimey! Well, that's not too bad. It could have been worse. <laughs> like what Sarah Howe could have died? Yes, that would have been awful. But. Uh. Um, Anyway, that was um, that was scarring, and it's really. I was too novice to stand my ground and say, "Let's take it," because it was out on it was out on its own premises, and it was just running around at the end of a lead, you know, trying to bite you. And I'm mean, not making excuses, but if I'd been firm and say, "Look, we we can't do anything here. We've got to get it somewhere I can, you know, put a tape around its nose and have a proper look," that was, you know, noviceness. But that was very early on in your career as well, wasn't it? That I know, but it was a salutary experience, you know, to be, you know, to do the thing that you're taught and you forget is to start at the nose end and work your way through being mm. thorough. Yeah. Well, on the, on the side of that then, what would you say, and there's a lot of things that I can think of that you could put in here, having just listened to you um, go through many facets of your career, but what would you say you... Uh, are the most proud of in your career? I think um, I think in pr improving horse welfare and, and hopefully human welfare and, and a bit in the uh, and the equine profession in some way that that is all I can say I can have contributed really. Yeah, I think that is looking at what you managed to do during those years on Beaver Council and associated groups. I think. It's incredible, really, and that work is still underway now. Um, which, which is... I think is great. I, I'm, and, and of course, so much more professionally done. I mean, all the Liverpool epidemiology, which wasn't really around, and James Wood, who's an absolute legend. I mean, he quite rightly boxed my ears in the early days. Just one thing I wish I could have got someone to do two things, really. One, I do think that they should publish uh, racetrack fatalities. Now, they flinch from this because they go, ooh, there's a difference in the horses, but the Americans do. They publish breakdown rates on their tracks mm. because yeah. it flags things. But I think owners and, and, and trainers should have the rights to make their own judgment, one. Two, I don't know if it's possible, but if all trainers, permits or otherwise, um, you know, years ago in the, in the dairy um, industry, uh, they'd have sort of uh, deciles and quartiles by whatever measures, you know, numbers of runs. In anonymous, but you could then see how you were doing, what was the best and what was the worst. Um, I know, probably very contentious, but why not? Uh, and then people have something to aim for. Yeah. And then owners can choose where they put their horse. If they don't care whether it's, you know, has a limited lifespan, but like the crack, that's fine, but you might have someone else who has a different ethos. Um, and I suppose, following on from that, in a way, what in your career would you do differently i i would have loved in some way but obviously it's financial call to have carried on racehorse training in a small way because i just got myself to being what i thought was competent and we did try to get permit trainers to be allowed to train for 
very limited number of others as do the Irish as they do in France because I've been asked by other people could I train and I said no I can't because they wanted to have their colours and I think because um, you need a certain number of horses inevitably because of injury you, you know having if you have someone working with you you need a certain number and uh, but without that backup then it's financially you know expensive but, but I having learnt some skills and I know there's much work I've done better I, I really loved that challenge of being able to put into practice what you've learned and what you see and um anyway that was um financially a no-no okay okay so apart from horses what are your passions away from Ooh, well it would be um well, I do, I do love racing. I mean, gardening, I know it sounds awful. Not not veggie stuff, but I do love flowers. <laughs> <laughs> it keeps me... Actually, I find it sounds awfully weedy, but a bit of sort of therapeutic weeding. And I, I like to think that the late, great Henry Cecil liked roses, so I can't be completely nuts. <laughs> <laughs> I do like... I mean, I haven't been a lot. I went to the theatre the first time the other night. But, you know, opera, ballet, theatre. Not Wagner, I have to say. Hasn't I? Um, and those I haven't been, but I love that. Um, you know, and and also travel. You know, um, even places like the Greek. I love the Greek islands, and and just to be able to get away, which I haven't done much of. You know, I would love to do a lot more. Yeah, escapism. All of that's escapism, isn't it? Yeah, that's another thing. My children have travelled the globe far more than ever we did. I mean, I don't yours, but I mean, my lot have been, you know, Australia, New Zealand, South America. Da, 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 da. I mean, there's not much you new know, that they haven't seemed to explore, and there's still more they're doing. And I just look in awe. I, I did a lot of Europe because of work. But, you know, what they've done, I, I don't think I know half of it. Mine's only five months, so she's just about explored the other side of the room at the moment. So. Well, Grace, Grace is 20, and they won't tell you the worst of it until you get them home, and then they sort of let slip some of the things they grow up to. And my son, my son worked as a jackaroo in Queensland, and uh, I said, oh, jolly good, really hard stuff. I mean, the animal welfare out there, jeepers. And... He told me he was herding big bulls out of the bush. And uh, they teach you apparently sort of, if you see one, spin, one spinning, you move it. Because one girl had her horse gored to death. Um, and then he was shot out of the saddle by a guy in the helicopter because they used rubber bullets to get them out of the bush. And the guy said, sorry, mate, I've been dying to try that. <laughs> he had this enormous hematoma between his shoulders. Oh, my God. And then, and then there's a crocodiles that come down with the floods so one poor jackaroo fording a billabong that had flooded crocs are waiting and went for the horse's legs and the poor man got crocs oh I, had no idea. I had no idea it was my little bubba you know 19 years old the other side of the whatever exposed to such danger <laughs> anyway, i'll leave you worry about that when i'm long dead and gone. <laughs> Crikey, yeah. I didn't realise that. I knew Australia was scary, but I didn't think it was that scary. But, uh, yeah. So, what in your career could you not have done your career and your horse racing passion? What what things did you need to do that? Uh, what And what could you not have done it without? Well, I think obviously the friends, both in Beaver and out of it, friends and and family and and the horses. That was all. And um, I think it's friendships, people who are kind enough to help me to offer advice. Um, yeah, I think friends because our family are very scattered. So I think my friends are probably the, the sort of things that I most have relied on. Mm. 
ready. Yeah. And so, moving on from that and potentially linked to that, um, and the final question really is um, you as a legend of the profession, um, who do you perceive as the people who are legends for you and who did you look up to and who did you idolise for some people? Well, still, I still do, and I'm going to give more than three because I know, because Charles Frank and Rosie Lomax, both, I suppose, when I first entered for different reasons, um, and then subsequently, then Peter Webben, who was evil, I remember, at Royal Vet College, but, I mean, went on, come with the man, you know, come with the R, uh, Twink Allen, another one, and then people like James Wood, Peter Green, and John Parker, who helped so much do the things that I've talked to you about today, and the pre-purchase panel, without whom... Um, I couldn't, and there's one other legend I would like to mention, Celia Marr, who I will never forget on 9-11 Beaver, when the keynote speaker couldn't fly in from America, and she took on his keynote speech overnight and gave an absolutely amazing presentation. I mean, I have huge respect for Celia. I think she's extraordinary. Thank you, Debs. Um, David pleasure. Mountford was quite correct. You have a fascinating story, and... Uh, I think our listeners uh, will love this podcast. So yeah, thank they're you. Pretty, they're pretty snigger, actually. <laughs> they're pretty, pretty raspberry. <laughs> I'm sure not. But yeah. uh, uh, it's an incredible story. And thank you very much for uh, taking the time today in uh, in going through that with us and, and, and talking to, to us all today. So thank you very much. My pleasure. This episode of Beaver Pod was produced by Beaver. For more details on the benefits of your Beaver membership and the products and services offered, please go to our website at www.beaver.org.uk.